Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to Mark, um, the fourth chapter, the 35th to the 41st verse. And it's the story of the storm on the sea. So let's, let's listen to the gospel first, listen to what's happening in the gospel first, and then maybe reflect upon what might be some of the deeper meaning of the story that's going on, not only um, it, with the intention of the gospel itself, but also within our own understanding, our own life. And it begins with the coming of evening. Jesus said to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. There's no reason for that given. It just seems that perhaps that Jesus has a new lesson to teach them. And after leaving the crowd behind, they took him just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. And then it began to blow a gale and the waves were breaking into the boat so that it was almost swamped. But he was in the stern, his head on the cushion asleep. They woke him and said to him, Master, do you not care we are going down? And he woke up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Quiet now, be calm. And the wind dropped and all was calm again. And then he said to them, Why are you so frightened? How is it that you have no faith? And then we'll stop there for, for just a minute and, uh, so, and begin to look at this. First of all, as I said, there seems to be no particular reason for them to go to the other side of the lake. And the Sea of Galilee is not a particularly huge um, body of water, but it's situated actually below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains. And so when night comes, very often the cold air comes down from the mountains, the warm air rises, and it creates storms. And actually they say that it can create waves up to seven or eight feet tall, which is, which is kind of unusual for a body of water as small as the Sea of Galilee. But certainly waves of seven or eight feet can be very treacherous. And it's one of the reasons, actually, that the boats don't go out at night. And although it says there were other boats with them, we only are aware of this one, which means that probably the others, realizing what a precarious journey this would be, um, turn back. And so the boat with Jesus and the disciples are the ones that continue to push on and push forward into the night. Um, and then the great storm arises. And here I think we have a thematic in the Bible that we have to become pretty, pretty aware of, pretty cognizant of. That, and it goes back, we, we always, it's interesting, it seems that we always have to go back to the beginning. We always have to go back to, to the book of Genesis. And in order to grasp much of the imagery and much of the understanding of, of the whole rest of the scriptures. We know that in the beginning, um, um, God, there was God and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, that part, the whole, the whole book of Genesis is, is taken, this is, this, is an interesting, this is an interesting phenomenon. You know, mythology is, uh, we think of mythology as, as fairy tale. But that's not really the way it's technically used, at least not in relationship to the scripture. 
Myth in the scripture means a contemporary explanation of something for which they have no other explanation. We have a lot of scientific myths in our own culture, our own society. We get this mantra, you know, we listen to science, and science constantly contradicts itself. And, and so it's kind of a false alternative. It's kind of a false positive, if we want to say, about the role that human knowledge takes in the explanation of the phenomenon of our world. We have but to take the, the huge variety of scientific um, understanding and analysis of the whole COVID um, phenomenon. Um, and we know that science in its highest form its highest degree of certitude is probability, so that science is not a fixed and a set reality. We can, we can certainly rely on the mechanistic understanding of science, of cause and effect that we find in Newton and that in Isaac Newton, and that we find backed up in the philosophy, for instance, of Descartes. But the fact of the matter is that it does not always conform with reality once you move beyond the basic mechanical operations of a society. When we get into um, epidemics, when we get into cosmology, when we get into the understanding of the universe and so forth, we are beyond the cause and effect reality, the clear cause and effect reality, and out of the world of black and white into the world of probabilities. And those probabilities are always evolving and always changing as human knowledge grows and diffuses. And so what happens then is that the book of Genesis is based on contemporary science. And that contemporary science is the Babylonian creation myth of the Enuma Elish. It's not a fairy tale. It's an explanation of the universe made with the best of, with the best of their ability and with the intellectual understanding and, and with, the, with the ability to gather the information that was proper to, uh, to prehistoric times. And so, basically, what Genesis does is it takes that science, it accepts that science, but then it infuses within it the revelation of God, so that, in a way, it takes the science of the age, infuses revelation into that science, and we get, then, the story of the book of Genesis. And we do that constantly. This idea that somehow or other there's a great divide between science and religion is... uh, is an invention of the Enlightenment to discredit Christianity. Religion and science have always, in the Catholic Church, been in many ways complementary to each other. And, uh, and although people will say, well, what about Galileo? And Galileo was a different story, actually, because Galileo, when religion tried to cooperate with Galileo, Galileo saw, in fact, that it was um, kind of had to share the glory and uh, refused to do so, and began plagiarizing the work, for instance, of the Society of Jesus at the Roman College, who were looking through the telescopes and seeing exactly the same thing that Galileo said, but attempting to understand them in a deeper sense than just factually. And uh, Robert Bellarmine, St. Robert Bellarmine, a, a Jesuit saint, was one of those men who knew exactly what Galileo was looking at, understood the practical implications of that, and were attempting to integrate that into the culture of the age when Galileo kind of short-circuited them. And through a series of misfortunes came to the trial that neither the Pope nor Robert Bellarmine, the head of the Holy Office, wanted. 
So, and it was a perfect storm for the Enlightenment then to say that that religion is ignorant, Christianity is ignorant, and uh, and anti-science. Never the case. In fact, as you know, the Catholic priests um, through the ages have discovered all sorts of of, of uh, cosmological phenomenon and. Uh, and we have always had a strong sense of the scientific as well as the faith, understanding that they are in, if we were to truly understand them, would be complementary because creation itself comes from the hand of God, and so does revelation about it come in the, to the, in the hand, from the hands of God. So basically, the sea in the opening chapter and the opening verse of the, of the book of Genesis, the sea is the primordial sea. Um, and that when the spirit hovers over the waters, the waters have a deep history to them in the Babylonian myth. They are a raging salt sea water. They are destructive force. In the Babylonian myth, there is a great war among the gods in order to try and defeat this primordial chaos. But chaos and, and uh, in, in the book of Genesis, there is no primordial war. In the book of Genesis, God simply speaks and the spirit of God hovers over the waters and the waters are calm. God has absolute control over the chaos simply through his word. This is what Genesis tells us. Chaos remains as a concept all the way through the scriptures. And you can see it over, of course, dramatically in the story of the flood. But here it rises again. Jesus leads the disciples into the midst of primordial chaos. That's the image. That's the Hebrew image of this particular gospel story. And we're going to see then who Jesus is in Mark's gospel. For now they have encountered the darkness, the great winds, and the mighty winds swept over the waters, and so on and so forth. There's all this chaotic imagery from Genesis <coughs> comes, um, comes bursting into Mark's gospel because the, one of the underlying themes in Mark's gospel, as we know, is that Jesus is the creator. And we, we, we pick that up very strongly from the God prologue of the Gospel of John. He is the Word. He is the Word who um, th- he was with God. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. Through him all things came to be. The one through whom all things came to be, the Word of God, that silenced the primordial sea in Genesis and brought forth peace and light, that word of God, John reminds us, became flesh and dwelt among us. And John then identifies that word made flesh as Jesus of Nazareth. And here we have Jesus of Nazareth, the one through whom all things came to be, sailing out into the midst of primordial chaos in order that his disciples might learn something more deeply and more profound about who he is. And Jesus, of course, in his peacefulness and probably in his human tiredness, goes to sleep. And then the, the night winds of the Sea of Galilee began to do their thing and create the great seven and eight foot wind, waves. And the boat begins to take on water. And they say to him, they try to wake him up and they say, Master, don't you care? We're going to sink. We're going to drown. And he woke up. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Quiet now, be calm. 
Can we see the first verse of Genesis in this, where the raging saltwater seas of the Enuma Elish, the Tohu Abohu, the great abyss, primordial chaos itself, can we see that then when God, the Spirit of God, hovers over the water and God speaks the word and there is light? And we come then from the Babylonian sense of absolute and utter primordial chaos to the revelation of the God of Israel, to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit coming forth. And instead of the great battle that goes on in the Enuma Elish, instead of the great battle that goes on over the primordial chaos that we find in the science of ancient Babylon, now the the revelation of God reinterprets that beginning for us and tells us, in fact, a deeper story, a more profound story, and a story that begins to find its way all the way through the scriptures. And it ends up here in the gospel according to St. Mark. And there again, now, we encounter the primordial chaos. We encounter the raging sea. We encounter the, the great winds that are sweeping over the waters. All of those kinds of things. That's what we're encountering now in all of this. And the Word of God, the Word who is is God, the Word who was made flesh in the midst of primordial chaos, says, Quiet now, become. And all things were as they were then in the very beginning. God calms the raging, chaotic, saltwater seas. And the wind dropped, and all was calm again. And then he says to the disciples, why were you so frightened? How is it that you have no faith? Why were you so frightened? When you know that the very power of the divine, the very one through whom all things came to be, is with you and has the power. It is a moment of revelation to the disciples. And it is an encouragement for them to believe more deeply in the truth of who Jesus Christ was and in the truth of what he is capable of doing. And it says then of the disciples, they were filled with awe and said to one another, who can this be? Even the wind and the sea obey him. We find emerging then in the Gospel of Mark, we find emerging Jesus the Creator, the Word made flesh, the one through whom all things came to be, exercising that same authority that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit exercised in the very beginning of creation itself. And that over the centuries, since God created the world and Adam and Eve fell, the role of chaos has become a continuing and threatening reality to humanity all the way through. And as it comes all the way through, Mark is the one most intent on bringing it to the surface because it is Mark whose underlying theme is Jesus as creator, the one who restores all things, the one who brings order into chaos. And that bringing order into chaos is, uh, is, is, is pretty, it, it's, it's strong and it's, uh, it's reminiscent of the very beginning of all things. And it sets up, it sets up a very, um, 
strong contrast in the story of Revelation, in the story of the people of Israel and the disciples, between order within their society and chaos within their society. When there is chaos within the society, we recognize and we see the presence of the evil one. We see the presence of chaos itself. And you know, it's it's kind of interesting too, because when Jesus dies on the cross, we catch a glimpse of primordial chaos once again, that the uh, the t- t- curtain in the sanctuary is torn in two, the tombs of the dead are broken open, there are earthquakes and storms and so forth. All of that demonstrating chaos seems to have triumphed at the death of the Lord. Chaos seems in some way to have been able to destabilize the world and to, to to twist the minds and the hearts of humanity. Jesus' death seems to be a triumph, but it is a false triumph of evil. It is it is a delusional triumph of evil. For three days later, he rises again from the dead, and the order of the world is restored in the rising of the Christ. And I think that we see that if, if we could keep this in mind, as we read the scriptures, as we pray the scriptures, as we go through the gospels even, look for those cues. Look for where does chaos emerge? And what? who is the one who stills chaos? In the Old Testament, it is simply God. In the New Testament, it is the word made flesh. And that word made flesh is that which can now, in the midst of a chaotic sea, say, quiet be calm, and all things become calm once again, despite the forces of nature which had created this chaos, it seems, in the first place. What does this mean, then, and how do we deal with this for ourselves? It's a very profound gospel in that sense, because it is something that bespeaks the entire body of scriptures in a kind of unitive sort of way, in a kind of way that's really important for us to see, to understand, and to know that somehow or other that the Word made flesh who dwells among us has the power to quell the chaos. We might want to think about that, and we might want to know that after the resurrection, he he does this usually in response to our plea, to our to our cry, you know there there is. Um, it's it's interesting to to maybe weave some of the mariological phenomenon that we experience into this story of chaos, and I th- I think particularly for instance of Fatima. Obviously, chaos is part of human human illness, human sinfulness, all of that kind of thing. And so we see, for instance, the hope that comes from this chaotic world in a place like Lourdes, where there are great healings that take place. Even more locally in Cary, Ohio, where healings take place. And, uh, and, and certainly um, we see it throughout the scriptures, the great healings, which are the revelation of Jesus as the word, as the one through whom all things came to be. We see this, for instance, then, let us look at Fatima. Um, What Mary saw and what she communicated at Fatima was the world falling into chaos, falling into the hands of Satan. 
And what, in fact, she encouraged her people to do, the children of God to do, the people, the faithful to do, is to pray to the Lord that the word can say to the chaotic world in which we live, quiet now and become. And so the great great admonition to pray the rosary for peace, to pray the rosary at that time for the conversion of Russia, which was a font and a source of all sorts of 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 evil in the world, in the, in the brutality of the Soviet regime, in the brutality of the Stalinist years, and so forth. And we even see it today in the, uh, in the worldwide spread of, of the, the Marxist ideals of the Soviet Union, now becoming quite, uh, quite chic in uh, modern American, modern Western society. Um, it's not that you contrast, you know, oh, our way of doing things was so good and this way is so bad that now it's too out. No, we were, we have, humanity is always fraught with failure and humanity is always fraught with uh, sinfulness and, and an element of an instability and an element of injustice. But the solution is not, therefore, to expel, to exclude the only power in the world that can make that good, that can bring good out of the evil of humanity, if humanity allows him. And that is the living God. But part of what has flowed out to us, especially from the days of the Soviet Union, are the, the chic Marxist theories that somehow or other give us the illusion that it is possible for humanity to calm the stormy seas. It is possible for humanity to be the one who silences chaos. And that we do not need the author of life. We do not need the creator of the world. We do not need the one who is among us, who is the one through whom all things came to be, who is therefore the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ, remaining in flesh, remaining incarnate with us in sacrament and church. Somehow or other, this part of the Marxist delusion is that if we, in fact, expel that power from our midst, then we will be able to handle the things that are going on. We will be able to handle the chaos of the world. And we know that to be false. We know that to be false in the Soviet Union where they expelled God completely and turned into a brutal, rapacious society. Stalin dwarfing the horrors of Hitler, causing the death of over 30 million people. Um, there's a book, a very good book on that, called The Harvest of Sorrows by Robert Conquest. And it's a story of the starving to death of millions and millions of people, deliberate starving to death of millions and millions of people under Stalin's reign in the Soviet Union. We know, for instance, that, that um, in the Third Reich, there was a ra rabid attempt to do everything they could to expunge Christianity from, from the ideology of the National Socialists with this illusion in, in, in insane illusion that somehow or other de Führer would be the one who would bring peace, be able to subdue the chaos of the world. And then when you say he could subdue the chaos of the world, you look at the unconscionable, chaotic world that he created and the destruction and the death, the killing of over 12 million people, half of them Jews, 
um, and uh, the rest Slavs and uh, homosexuals and gypsies and the mentally and physically disabled. And also, if you go to the death camp of Mauthausen, you find a whole cemetery of Catholic priests and nuns who were exterminated at Mauthausen in an attempt to snuff out the religious opposition to the madness of the Third Reich. So, when we want to take and reflect upon our world in a biblical sense, we have the interjection into the midst of the madness in 1917, which was the year of the Bolshevik Revolution, that uh, the Blessed Mother appears in Fatima and says, this is going to impact the whole world. This is not an ice. This is going to impact the whole world unless you pray and invoke the living God to come down and to restore some kind of calmness, some kind of order into what is becoming increasingly a chaotic world. The First World War was perhaps one of the most, one of the worst stumbling, bungling mistakes of of Western humanity. It was a war with no purpose, no sense, and yet 20 million people died in that war for no reason except that chaos reigned, except that somehow or other there was, there was a failure on the part of those who are disciples of the Lord to in some way try to ensure the fact that the living God is present and working among us. It's in the midst of that terrible situation that the Blessed Mother comes to Fatima and says, you know how to solve this problem. The way to solve the problem is through prayer and through fidelity of life. And that's exactly what the Gospels want to lead us to. They want to show us truly who this is in our midst. Who is this? whom we call Jesus Christ? Who is this whom we honor in our tabernacles? Who is this who we receive in the Eucharist? Who is this then, and what is his mission among us? It is exactly what this gospel says. In the midst of the resurgence of chaos, he is the one with the power to calm the stormy sea, the raging primordial seas, to overcome the power of the abyss. That's who he is. How do we approach him? We approach him as the Blessed Mother guides us to approach him, through prayer, through deeper faith, through greater acts of faith, through greater desire to be his disciples, not letting our faith simply become a social convention, but allowing it to take deep, deep root in our hearts and in those deep roots in our hearts to help us then always to be in some way the faithful sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ who invoke him in the midst of crisis and trouble, who take courage and hope in the midst of the modern primordial chaos, which is, of course, the emergence of the powers of darkness, the powers of Satan in the modern world. Let us resolve to listen to Jesus' mother and listen, therefore, to how she tells us to resolve the chaotic and, and dangerous storms of our present age. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.